0: The Nonprofit Happy Hour. A weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do with interviews, music, and documentaries. You're listening to the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Learn more online at MediaMakingChange.org I'm Rachel Miller-Howard. On today's show, we bring you a conversation with Judy Margles, who's the Executive Director for the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education.
1: This is the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I am joined in the studio today by Judy Margles, who is Executive Director for the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education. Good morning. How, how are you doing?
2: Very well. Thank you for having me here.
1: Judy, I'm going to start out with a potentially challenging question. Um, let me read the mission first, and then I want you to um, stick up for it. Okay. Okay. Um, so the mission is the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education explores the legacy of the Jewish experience in Oregon and teaches the universal lessons of the Holocaust. End quote. So what what where I want to start is: is it necessary to combine those two ideas?
2: Well, that's a really good question. So, um, and it really has to do with the history of our organization, that we started off, I've always been the director of the Oregon Jewish Museum. And in 2014, we merged with the Oregon Holocaust Resource Center, taking on Holocaust education as part of our mandate. So when you think about it, they are quite disparate, right? You have the experience of Oregon Jews or American Jews. We were really focused on the continuity of the American Jewish experience, and more specifically, the Oregon Jewish experience. And then we take on Holocaust education. So the challenge for us after the merger was, how do we marry these very different stories, and we're able to do that in a number of ways. First and foremost, um, we're really looking at talking about the Holocaust through the stories of our own survivors, so that is that has become an Oregon Jewish experience, and I think more importantly, we use the history of the Holocaust and the way we teach about the Holocaust in a very universal way, so that it becomes... An important tool of teaching about discrimination, resistance, um, genocide to Oregonians and uh, visitors at large.
1: I I am going to keep pushing this mm-hmm. point just a little bit mm-hmm. because I I and you are answering it uh, very well, mm-hmm. but I also find it interesting in thinking about uh, a a a Jewish family who moved to Oregon in the nine in the 1880s has um in in some ways putting the holocaust with their experience uh does that distract from their story
2: i would say on the contrary and one of the ways that we really work again at uh, talking about these seemingly different aspects of our mission is through our core exhibitions and this was really again one of the challenges that we had when we moved into our new home. We've been there since June of 2017. Um, we knew with more space we wanted to create what we call core exhibitions. About um, We knew we wanted to do an exhibition about the Holocaust using the stories of our survivors. We knew we wanted to do an exhibition about the Oregon Jewish experience where we landed as a way to really help Someone who's learning about, as you say, a family that moved here, say in the late 19th century, a Jewish family. Why is the story of the Holocaust important? It, it may sound a little convoluted, but it's actually through our third core exhibit, which we call "Discrimination and Resistance: An Oregon Primer," and in that exhibit, we have in the we've really developed um, ways for our visitors uh, to understand that one of the ways you 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 can Learn about the history of the Holocaust or other genocides, which by and large are completely unintelligible when you think about it. When you think about the horror that um, these people who survived uh, experienced, it's unintelligible to talk about it. We're talking about the history of Oregon to our visitors. So in this exhibit discrimination and resistance in Oregon Primer, we're actually talking about tools of discrimination, patterns of behavior that you're seeing in Oregon replicated in the Holocaust.
1: Yeah, and and, and uh, you, I'm sure, have much better focus on the answer to this question, but um, anti-Semitism has been a force in Oregon, uh, certainly in in uh, Portland in the 1920s, I think that there most people are familiar that uh, the mayor had some affiliations with the KKK. And what what I find interesting is when people hear the KKK, they usually assume racism. Uh, Oregon also had uh, did not have many black families at that time, and and so the KKK was more anti Semitic in. In, in Oregon, now you know you can't see this on on uh, the radio, but uh, <laughs> Judy just sort of gave me the uh, were... uh, so so with the hand. So my sense of history may be a little bit off here, but but uh, can can you talk maybe a little bit about some of the uh, history in Oregon of of anti semitism, whether or not that has to do with the the 1920s in Portland or or more broadly? And that's a huge question, but
2: it's a it is a really big question, and it doesn't have a very coherent answer. Because by and large, one of the um, things that we focus on in the museum and in the way we talk about Oregon Jews is that, by and large, they have been very successful. And that is really borne out by the history of arrivals of Jews into Oregon. The first arrivals were in the late 1840s, um, at a time where other immigrants were coming into the state. These were German Jews. They were coming from uh, Central Europe at a time of, you know, a depression, um, uncertain economic circumstances, det- Discrimination towards Jews in Bavaria, in Prussia, in Germany, in Austria. So there were young men coming out of Central Europe in the 1850s, coming to America, coming west to Oregon, and they were really here at a time of a level playing field. So they were one of a number of immigrants. They spoke German, which was the longa franca of the street. So, and they were very intent on being part of the community, assimilating into the community, and I, I I, don't want to go on and on, but to the point where they were assimilating even the religion. The religion was reforming at that time, too. That was followed by another immigrant group, the Russian Jews who were coming in. There were definitely pockets of discrimination towards Jews without out. Um, things that you saw replicated around the entire country. Jews were not allowed in the country clubs. Jews had difficulty, um, sort of, if you will, the social mobility at the time, uh, being lawyers in firms, be, uh, medical schools had quotas present preventing Jews from uh, going both to law school and medical school, those sorts of discrimination. But there aren't um, any... Uh, profound incidents throughout the history of Oregon that would say that there was uh, tremendous anti Semitism. You mentioned the KKK. In fact, the KKK, which, you know, you're, you're right, the KKK in the 90s, in the 1920s was the largest clan west of the Mississippi. Their target, first and foremost, were the Catholic community, followed by the African American community. And, you know, we don't actually have a lot of evidence that they targeted the Jewish community in Oregon.
1: OK, I, I, I appreciate having my story set a little bit uh, straight, which which is obviously um, part of the reason that people should come down and, and, and visit the museum. Um, I, I, I want to talk. Let's talk a little bit. So, so you have a new space, uh, not quite two years there. Correct. Uh Tell me where the space is and describe it a little bit.
2: Sure. We're at um, the North Park Blocks and Davis, so 8th and Davis, uh, the corner of the Park Blocks. We have close to 15,000 square feet. It is a huge change for this organization, which I always described as as a nomadic or peripatetic, and we never had um, a place that we could call our own. So it's our first permanent home. Um, Beautiful space. It was refurbished in 2005, so it's still very new space. And in that space we're able to on our end the downstairs of the museum, we have space for two changing exhibitions, so exhibitions that we either curate ourselves or, bring in from other places, and those are temporary. They last about three or four months. We have a cafe called Lefties, and we have a gift shop downstairs. On the second floor are our core exhibitions. We have an archive, a research library, an artifact collection, and a large auditorium for public programs and admin offices.
1: There's a lot going on. And a children's corner.
2: So if you have young ones, we have a place where kids can come and read
1: and Go down a slide and have a good time. Um so so a lot going on, which I I imagine makes your job more difficult or more fun, or uh uh what, what you're driving a much larger vehicle than, than you were a couple years ago.
2: We're driving a much larger vehicle in very fraught times. So I would say that our work is extremely challenging as we're responding to the world around us, given our mission.
1: Uh, and, and okay, I, so I, I want to just uh, 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 pin down when you're saying fraught times, you're not saying financially fraught times, uh, which, which sometimes executive directors are focused on. You're saying uh, politically and philosophically, politically fraught,
2: and times. Ph- philosophically fra- fraught times. Politically and
1: philosophically fraught times. And you had your director's address last year, and you talked about the urgency and the parallels with, I, I really was focused on the current administration. Correct. You just you, you just visibly gulped when I said current administration.
2: Well, we are. I mean, a lot of our work we make sure that the work we're doing is mission centered, but a lot of um were we really ascribe to a thinking amongst museums that museums are not neutral. So, um, you know, the museum used to be the temple, the place where. The community would come to see itself reflected on the walls, and we really want to be more of the museum as a forum, as a place where ideas can be discussed, debated, um, with respect.
1: Are there examples that you're using as uh, guidance uh, in 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 that that idea of using the the, the museum? Uh, in that regard, I mean, are there examples in the Portland area or nationally? that yeah, you Yeah, I mean, to? one of the
2: um, one of the founders of this movement is Mike Murawski, who, um who is at the Art, Portland Art Museum. He's in uh, head of the education department at the Portland Art Museum, so he is a worthy interview interviewee for you. He's an extraordinary person who's really led the the um, leadership on the museums are not neutral. Uh, Judy cause. Judy
1: Margolis is executive director for the Oregon Jewish Museum and and Center for Holocaust Education. Uh, you, you brought in a, uh, a, a folk song for us to listen to while we take our musical break. Do you want to set that up for us?
2: I, it's an aspirational song for me. I um, very much part of my youth. I was introduced to Rosalie Sorrells at a folk festival by my uh, brother-in-law many, many years ago, and she has a favorite of mine. She lived most of her life in Boise, passed away last year.
1: Let's take a listen.
3: rain can we why the wind's a lonely child that cries itself to sleep I've envied the sunlight the amber of its smile wished it could be borrowed for a while if I could be the rain If I could be the wind, there'd be no more of me. If I could be the sunlight, and all the days were mine, I would find some special place to shine. I wish that I could be the rain If I could be the rain I wash down to the sea If I could be the rain
1: This is the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm Phil Bussey. I'm joined in the studio by Judy Margolis, who is Executive Director for Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education. Uh, be- before the break, we were talking some about uh, somewhat recent merger uh, of, of the two museums and education, as well as new space. I want to uh, change a little bit, because I feel like we were talking about some of the, the um, hardships and challenges uh, that Jewish families uh, and and individuals have had. Let's talk about some real big successes. I mean, I think when you look at well, one I want to start with. So there's a Mel Blanc uh, exhibit. I only uh-huh. learned that recently. So 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 uh, for those of you that don't that 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 name doesn't quite uh, conjure up. That's uh, Mel Blanc is Porky Pig. He's 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 Looney Tunes. He's Bugs Bunny. He's um, I did not realize this started as an early radio personality in the Portland area. In Portland.
2: So Mel Blanc moved to Portland when he was six and stayed here till he was 27 years old. So I always say about Mel Blanc that by the time he left for Hollywood... All those voices were in his head because he grew up in the immigrant neighborhood of South Portland. So he was exposed to Yiddish, to German, to Norwegian, to French, to other Scandinavian languages. There were a lot of immigrants in that neighborhood. So if I made two, two of my favorite Mel Blanc stories... Um, He went to Lincoln High School when Lincoln High School was at Portland State, and he talked about um, walking down the halls of Lincoln High School and that Woody Woodpecker. Mm -hmm. He he honed in the Woody Woodpecker voice um, from the reverberations off the walls at Lincoln High School. Now, he actually didn't go on. He was Woody Woodpecker for one or two years, um, if my memory serves me, but was not actually the Woody Woodpecker voice um, continuing on. But I think my very favorite story about Mel Blanc is his first job in Hollywood Little Jewish boy from Portland, Oregon, goes to Hollywood. Porky the pig.
1: So. <laughs> and then, right, then. <laughs> yeah, he likes that. <laughs> um, and 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 um, some of the other. Info- so so what what is part of the exhibit then? What what do we?
2: Um, um, Mel Blanc is. We actually did a Mel Blanc exhibit in two thousand and ten when we were in our old location, and we're hoping to reprise that exhibit uh, coming down the in in a few years. We want to bring that ex- exhibition back because. Uh, when we were in our other location, we didn't have that as big a visitorship as we do today. So we think that it's entirely worthy to bring it back. So upstairs, we just in our core exhibition about the Oregon Jewish experience, we have some photographs and a couple of stories about Mount Blanc. Not a lot.
1: And and um, thinking about other influences or uh, uh, marquee names that have come out of the Portland or the Oregon uh, Jewish communities. When, when you read over the list of mayors of portland theres there's certainly uh, uh I mean most recently uh Vera Katz, uh Neil goldschmidt before that um i I just blanked on the rest of my mayor oral history but but I mean those are two major influences on modern day portland absolutely uh and and how <coughs> how does it matter that those mayors uh who have shaped Portland were Jewish?
2: I think it does matter. I mean, I think I think it I think it's good to show in Oregon that Jews are part of the fabric of the civil society that is created here. And if I may, see the say the first Jewish mayor in Oregon was in eighteen sixty nine. So, if you think about your history, Oregon became a state in eighteen fifty nine. So, ten years after statehood, Portland has its first Jewish mayor, this wonderful, um, very colorful figure named. Uh, Bernard Goldsmith, who came from Prussia when he was 14, came into New York City and worked his way – I mean this – you know, when I think about – no offense to my children, but when I think about what they were like when they were 14, hard to imagine that they could do this. You know, he came by himself. To New York City, he worked for a watchmaker for a few years and then slowly made his his way across the United States. He fought in the Indian Wars. He bred a kind of cattle, ended up in Portland and became the mayor in 1869 when he was still in his, I think, late 30s, early 40s. And one of his greatest gifts to Portland was um, he talked the city council into buying land for a park, which became the city park, which became Forest Park. Uh, Forty acres. They were very upset. They thought it was too expensive, but he 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 pulled it off.
1: Oh, thank so, you.
2: So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's um, you know, I think it's I think it's a testament to Oregon itself. Even though I always say Oregon has one of the um, worst histories of discriminating against the other than any other state. I mean, Oregon is the only state in the union that. In 1859, when Oregon achieved statehood, it did so with an exclusion law keeping African Americans out of the state. That's, you know, no other state has ever, before that or after that, did that.
1: You're right. That is that is a very um, uh, dark moment of, of Oregon's history, and and especially um, gruesome that it's it's wrapped into the genesis. Of it. Um, Correct. And, and, you know, and and certainly cast a shadow that was decades, if not continues to be part of what what we're dealing with.
2: And I, I, you know, it is something that we talk about in our core exhibitions that you think about these exclusion laws from the Oregon Territory through to the Oregon Constitution. And you just pull that thread to the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s and where we are in Oregon with white nationalism today. Just you know, white nationalism. The problems we're having today didn't arise in a vacuum.
1: And, and an important part of your organization and the museum is, is obviously, uh, making these lessons, uh, uh, lessons and successes, uh, available to the next generation. And uh, there is a writing competition that mm-hmm. is sponsored. There is. Can tell me what the tell me what it is a little bit, of, and then there's a prompt that I believe that the is it high school, and and, and I don't need the exact verbiage. <laughs> Uh, just you know the, the the gist of it would be great.
2: Sure. So we have um, this um, predeceased the, the merger. This this was um, this contest has been around for about twenty years. It started with the Oregon Holocaust Resource Center, and the goal is to give a creative prompt to high, middle, and high school students who can do a writing project or an art project. And in recent years, we've really adapted the goal so it's not only focused on the Holocaust, but it's really getting students to use the Holocaust as a learning mechanism to think about larger global issues. Um, the winner, the grand prize winner of both the middle school and the high school um, get a trip to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum with their teacher and a parent.
1: That's a so, big deal.
2: It is a big deal. And it's it's it is actually, ta- oh, it's so humbling. It's really humbling. We get... Maybe 100 entries for both the art project and the writing project. We have a panel of very serious judges who um, take about a week to go through the projects, and then the winners are chosen. And then we have a, a, a celebratory lunch for the winners.
1: And, and the, the gist of the prompt?
2: Um, so the prompt, this year uh, is the 80th anniversary of kinder transport. These were children who came out of um, Central Europe and went to England, uh, were uh, their parents literally gave them up, knowing that their fate had they remained in Europe would be very uncertain. So they sent their children to Europe, and many of these kinder transport children came to uh, the United States. So it's really getting uh, our students to think about separation of their from their parents. Uh, and given the situation at the southern border, it seemed a very timely prompt for us to do this year.
1: Judy Margolis is executive director for Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education. I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk to us. I just just uh, one question to leave us with. What what has been the a piece of history or a person of history that has most surprised you uh, in in your time with the the organization?
2: Hmm. Well, I feel like I have to give a woman's name, so perhaps I will give the name of Josephine Hirsch. Josephine Hirsch was married to a very, very wealthy um, businessman, and she was part of the movement to give Oregon women the right to vote in 1912. Uh, She was a little separated from the Jewish community at large, which was strangely silent around the efforts to give women the right to vote. They weren't opposed to it, but they weren't um, as big as advocates as you might imagine. And Josephine Hirsch was just an avid suffragist, uh, so avid and it, uh, that she had a telephone put into every room in her mansion to make sure if a phone call came from somebody who had to talk about the situation with the uh, woman's suffrage, she could answer the telephone.
1: That is a great story. And thank you so much for uh, the work you're doing. Good luck with uh, the, the, the new space. And Thank you and, so much. Um, I hope you'll come see us. I absolutely will. Thank you.
0: The nonprofit Happy Hour is made possible by Beneficial State Bank, a certified B Corp that holds to a triple bottom line of social justice, environmental well-being, and economic sustainability. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our producer is me, Rachel Miller Howard. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, and ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.